Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, wait a minute. That's the book. I know, it's a book. The book. They left it. The other ship, the Horizon. This is the contamination, Captain. Astonishing. An entire culture based on this. You said they were imitative in the book. I don't want any more cracks about the book. Did they leave any other books? So the latest Star Trek novel has dropped recently, and it's an original series novel, and I'm really excited to talk about it here on Positively Trek, our special book club episode. I'm Dan Gunther. With me, as always, is Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I was just watching The Crown. We're almost done watching the third season of that. And then I said, oh, I don't need to watch the last episode of The Crown. I have to go do a podcast because we get to talk a new Star Trek novel. <laughs> it's important to have priorities. Absolutely. You know, yes. so, yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is a good priority. Definitely. As always, when we have a new novel out, we try our hardest to get the author of said novel to join us on the show. And, and we, we tried succeed. and tried and tried and tried. Unfortunately, everybody, I, I don't, Dan, go ahead, break the news. Well, the news is we succeeded this week. Yay! <laughs> and we didn't try getting, that hard. In getting the wonderful Greg Cox on the show, author of A Contest of Principles. So Greg, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome. Always happy to have you on. We previously spoke with you on Literary Treks back when Bruce and I hosted that. I think the Antares Maelstrom was, was the last book we had you on for. So excited to have you on our new venture over here. Again, glad to you know come on from Literary to Positive. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so yeah, this novel, A Contest of Principles, a uh, new Star Trek, the original series novel, uh, I do have to say, and, and I have, I have to make my apologies for this on my website, treklet.com. Uh, and, and someone did contact me about this. I called it <laughs> a choice of catastrophes, which of course was a different novel that came out years ago by different authors. And it's that a noun of nouns. It, it messed me up, but a contest of principles. I've been repeating that name myself to myself over and over for the last two weeks. <laughs> and now you got it. You got Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, as the title implies, a contest of principles, which uh, is a colloquialism in the, that you use in the novel here for an election. And uh, we're going to get right into this. This book talks about an election. It's kind of the main feature of one of the storylines which is interesting timing. So <laughs> let's just start right there and ask about the timing of this. Uh, was this election story, was it planned to come out around this time? I know there's a long lead time. How closely was this actually planned? Not as much as you would think. And certainly I, I, I swear to God, I did not intend this book to be so topical. Um, now, you know, 
Because again, no, I, I wrote this book over a year ago. I think I turned in the manuscript like last October because publishing has long, slow lead times. And I, which I haven't done the math, but I presumably I submitted the outline to Pocketbooks and CBS to be approved well before that. Typically, these things sit around on people's desks until they get approved. And I know that the idea of the enterprise crew serving as election observers has been sort of languishing in my, you know, sort of brainstorming to do file for some years now. That being said, clearly going back now, I'm looking at the book again. You could sort of see what must have been sort of, it wasn't deliberate, but what was probably going through the back of my brain, the zeitgeist, whatever, as I was writing that book. Even I, yeah, I, I'm a little stunned that I pick up this book and oh god, the like, page four, no one will steal this election. You know, <laughs> whoa, you know. the the first word of the first chapter of the first page is vote in all. Okay, clearly, like I said, I wrote this over a year ago, but I guess it was you know, we we are part of the atmosphere we are living in as I was writing that book. Although it I'm was amused, so crazy. I'm amused to see reviewers now. Oh, clearly this book, which was clearly inspired by the fractious 2020 election. Well, I wrote this all years ago. Yet I'd be, oh my God, there's all subplots about you know voter intimidation and and people refusing to show up for presidential debates. And I'm going, oh good God. You know? <laughs> I, I could live, frankly, I could live, frankly, without this book being as topical as it turned out to be. As the as the U.S. election was going on, and you were hearing things like that going on, were you thinking, "Oh my gosh, that's in my book"? Oh my gosh, a little I bit of that, this. a little bit. Yeah, it was more like when the book finally kind of. La- I got my author copies about you know a month ago, and they landed on my desk, and I started looking through them again. Oh right, I remember this book. I wrote this book a year ago. Oh vote. Oh oh well, no one's going to steal this election. Oh, oh, the big exciting presidential election debate scene. And oh, the scene where they're trying to attack on the polls without giving away too much, you know, and the voter intimidation scene. Oh, my God. You know. Yeah. And all votes must be counted. I I, I guess. Yes. And I'm going, whoa, I guess it was not as deliberate. In fact, if I really planned it, you know, I remember my, my timing, frankly, sucked because the book was published. It hit the shelves a week after the election. So when we all assumed that the election would be well resolved a week after the election, you know, so I remember thinking at one point, oh, that kind of sucks. The book comes out the week after the election. It's going to be kind of old news by then. Surprise. It was not so much old news by then, you know. Well, yeah. So let's talk a bit about that plot line as it pertains to the novel. So this this novel's going on on this planet called Vok. And like you said, the Enterprise crew is brought in as part of the election observers, so what what can you tell us about these two candidates? We have General Gog, kind of a populist old military general, uh, representative of kind of the old regime, and Dr. Seth, this intellectual and uh, seen as, as a reformer and maybe on the more, if you were going to apply our political spectrum on, on the liberal side of things, I would say, compared to uh, Gog. What can you tell us about how these two candidates came together and, and how that part of the story worked. Well, I will admit that in my head, General Gog is played by Christopher Lee. Okay. Uh, Ooh, I like that. And yeah. honestly, I did not actually see, I will say in terms of topicality, 
Um, Gog is not is is obviously the hardline conservative in this election. He is not Donald Trump. I, he, he's actually more old school military junta regime. I actually kind of had you know some sort of South American you know Juan Perón you know kind of character. He's the, the company the the planet is coming out of many years of you know military rule. And honestly, I, I tried to write Gop, who is, actually, this is funny, I should confess this. Originally, in the first draft, his name was Gop, not Gog, G-O-P-P. And again, I swear to God, this no association intended, it was late in the day that the copy editor pointed out to me that Gop could be read as G-O-P. Yeah. You know, right. as, oh, so Greg, did you, that's kind of heavy handed, don't you think? Don't you think calling him the bad guy Gop is, oh God, I didn't do that on purpose. So we. Obviously, at that point, it had already gone through the editor. It had gone past CBS. We were in the copy stages, and at the last minute, General Gop got two Ps, got changed to General Gog two Gs. But no, you know, Gog is a hardliner. I tried. He has, without giving too much away, a certain degree of integrity. He's, you know, clearly the Federation would prefer the, the more liberal-minded, um, intellectual Professor Seth character win the election as opposed to the more hawkish warlike general gob but kirk's one of kirk's challenges in the book about giving away to it is he's trying very hard to stay neutral because the enterprise is there to be neutral observers they can't afford to you know yet honestly the federation would prefer that the more peace-loving liberal faction prevail but kirk is trying very hard through the entire book to you know no we're here to be neutral we gotta like not take sides here even though the temptation occasionally to maybe lean towards help out, you know, Professor Seth is there and is an issue, you know. I did see some parallels in that and uh, how he was represented, though, in, in a lot of ways, because it did remind me a lot of this recent election. And I thought, why is Greg doing this to me? Why is he making me read about an election again? But it was it's interesting to read this, too, because how the Federation is there to be an observer and to make sure that this is a peaceful election. But, you know, I would think that a lot of people on, on VOC would not enjoy that the Federation is getting involved, even though it's supposed to be a peaceful thing. Again, you know, I've had this idea. I like the idea of the enterprise being election observers, which like I said, the idea has been sort of sitting in my brainstorming file for years, simply because it seemed like a way to do a political plot that, wasn't the usual where you're transporting ambassadors to a crucial peace conference thing. You see to me, I, I'm probably wrong because there's been a, a thousand Star Trek novels. Uh, I didn't remember the Enterprise's election observers really being a cliche that had been done to death. So that was the mm-hmm. appeal of that. And then it came a matter of just trying to, you know, come up with the factions and, you know, the idea that there was sort of this, you know, hardline military regime and then this more reformer group, you know, and then, of course, as we know, there's there's foreign affair issues, too. It, again, it's in the Federation's best interest that the less xenophobic, le- more peace-loving faction prevail. But right now, they just mostly want a peace. The last thing anybody wants is a civil war on this planet and it extending out. Because, again, this is all established in like Chapter 2. This is not Federation space, but it's close enough to Federation space and some outlying Federation colonies that they really don't want this whole sort of, you know, sector to erupt into civil war and violence and whatever. So 
a peaceful transition of power, I, you know, is, is very much in the interest of the Federation and all concerned. General Gopp's people are, frankly, rather suspicious of the Federation and are frequently accusing them of being biased towards. And Kirk's like, no, no, no. And even some of Kirk's own people occasionally are like, well, maybe we can kind of, no, 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 we've got to be neutral here, which proves to be very difficult without giving too much away, you know, yeah. as things heat up. Absolutely. Well, I, I think this is probably a good time to say that we will get into spoilers at this point. Um, maybe uh, leave this to say this is an excellent novel. So if you've listened up to here and haven't purchased it yet, go get it, go pick it up. I, I think it's very timely. I mean, intentionally or not, it, it definitely, there's some chords that it strikes that will be very familiar. Uh, and I think it will leave you feeling like, boy, we wish we could kind of have that world right now. But anyway. Uh, so I'll, I'll move on from there. Uh, just to say that this whole election situation, this uh, setup does lead to some really interesting situations, uh, like you kind of alluded to with regards to the Federation's ideals and ethics and in, in wanting to remain neutral and kind of the push and pull of that. So uh, what was kind of when you were thinking up this idea, what was kind of the one situation that you were like? I wonder what Captain Kirk would do here or how these characters would would navigate this. What was kind of the most enticing to you to explore? Generally had kind of idea, okay, there's gonna be uh dilemmas and scandals and I I, I kinda of went into a vague sense that there's gonna they had to prevent some voter temptation, which means there was gonna to have to be an attack on a polling place at some point. Um, there was gonna be some questions with the count. And because this is a Star Trek novel and requires a certain amount of action. Again, there's an assass- there are assassination attempts and there's a conspiracies, but the conspiracies are interesting. And again, investigating this, Kirk is always walking a fine line between trying to accuse this side or that, that side and who's letting the Federation be. And again, despite resistance occasionally to the, you know, is, is this beyond my purview to find out who is behind the assassination? The local authorities are not, are not always like, hey, this is not... You're, you're, you're here to count the votes or whatever. And yeah, but we're here to guarantee a fair election and we can't guarantee there won't be a fair election unless we can figure out which of the candidates is trying to kill the other candidate and who's responsible, you know. Yeah, poor Kirk, there's a bit of mission creep here in that, you know, Kirk, Kirk's role keeps expanding. He ends up, just, hey, spoiler, you know, ends up having to moderate the presidential debate at one point, you know, <laughs> which was not part of it, but for, for reasons like this, that this happens, you know, for, for, and indeed, originally there's a Federation ambassador, but again, for reasons, Kirk's support role keeps getting bigger and bigger, and he ends up, you know, playing a much more bigger part in this election that he really wanted to or is comfortable doing, you know. I did enjoy uh, Kirk's kind of stint as the debate debate moderator there. I I was kind of curious, again, kind of going into this fresh off of our shared experience in recent weeks, kind of wondering if, you know, there would be any kind of weird situations where it was awkward for him to be the moderator there. But I think it worked out better for him than some I other people. I will actually confess, writing-wise, that was something that was not planned. That was something I came up with. I originally wrote that scene, there was a moderator and it just, I had, kind of had Kirk off to the sidelines watching it. And I thought, okay, this isn't working really. It's just Kirk off to the sidelines watching the debate is not as, I find, okay, you know, screw it. Kirk is the moderator and I tried to make that plausible. Okay, you know, but yeah, that was literally, as I was writing, that was not in the outline. As I was writing the chapter, 
no, Kirk needs to be front and center in the middle of this. I can't have him just on the sidelines and the bleachers sort of watching the debate. He needs to be in the middle of it. So yes, Kirk ends up as the moderator of the presidential debate, which does not go well. Okay. <laughs> well, speaking of Kirk, it just occurred to me how the Kirk, Spock, and McCoy dynamic, they're all separate from each other. Is, was that something you wanted to do is keep these characters separate in this book and then bring them together at the end? Part of it honestly was just to get a big book. You know, I wanted it to be a big, ambitious book. So kind of having an A plot, a B plot, and a C plot was one way to get it over 100,000 words, he says crassly. But, <laughs> and this kind of came, evolved to me, that, oh, well, if there's a Kirk Sp- plot, a Spock plot, and a McCoy plot, that gives me a lot of material to work with. So it would be a nice, big, thick, chewy book, you know? So, and it's interesting. It also meant that because you get to see the characters, you know, sort of independently, gives me a chance to focus on other characters and bring things out. One of my other goals, we haven't moved on to this plot line yet. I sort of tackle these books with different projects was I wanted to write a book that also was very much about McCoy. This is, I also described this book as besides all the political stuff, as my love letter to McCoy, because it suddenly dawned on me that even though I've been writing Star Trek novels for 25 years, and I love McCoy, that I'd never actually written a McCoy-centric novel. And again, separating the character means that McCoy's not just there on the sidelines, you know, bickering with Spock and talking, oh, I I kind of wanted to, you know, focus on McCoy a bit. So giving him his own plot line off on another planet meant he was the protagonist of that part of the book, you know, and got me to have, you know. I, I like how you said plot A, B, and C, because at the same time, we have three planets that are all related to each other. Could you tell us about the relationship between the three planets? A lot of the challenges was trying to make the three planets feel different. I was I spent way too much time trying to make sure that they had slightly different cultures and people smoke on one planet and they don't smoke on another planet. And one planet is kind of, you know, a, a feudal monarchy and one planet is very sort of depressed and urban. And, you know, so basically you've got, you know, Vok, which is coming out of these years of military regime and it's fairly modern and high tech. This, despite years of military oppression, it's actually not terribly, you know, it, it's in good shape. The buildings are all shiny. I thought of it as sort of the Flash Gordon planet where, you know, you got shiny buildings and everything. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got um, this other planet, which is disputed territory between, okay, I should mention, and then there's the, Ozalor is, is, is the rival planet, the old adversary of Bakken. They're much more of a traditional monarchy. They're modern. I mean, they don't, you know, they, they've got holograms and computers and things, but it's a hereditary monetary and they've got lots of palace intrigues. I, I kind of like that you, you have politics, you've got sort of electoral politics and Vok, you've got old fashioned sort of, you know, Game of Thrones, <laughs> um, you know, palace intrigues going on in Ozalor, and that's the planet McCoy ends up on. And then they're both fighting over this disputed planet, Braco. Uh, and Braco is kind of war torn. Uh, in my head, Braco is kind of like Vienna post war. If you've ever seen the movie The Third Man, which is set in post-war Vienna, which is all kind of bombed out and divided at barricades. That was sort of my mental conception, you know. Uh, and Maraca is a bone of contention. You've got one faction that sort of supports, wants to be aligned with um, Vok, another 
uh, faction that wants to be aligned with Oslor, and you got another faction who just wants, no, we want to be independent, we don't want to have anything to do with the other two, you know. And it, 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 they, 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 they've just come out of a nasty civil war. There's a you know, transitional government in place, but it's kind of, you know, tense and awkward and, you know, and it's, it, oh, and if you know, if you know it's, it's wet and rainy and grimy and gray and dry. That was sort of my, you know, like I said, in my head, honestly, it's sort of com- composite of sort of, you know, Northern Ireland meets Kashmir meets, you know, uh, you know, parts of the Middle East, any sort of disputed territory that's had a, a Lebanon that's had a long history of violence and, you know, See, I, I was thinking Star Wars planets like Coruscant and Naboo and Tatooine. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Like they're, they're sort of the, the, the sort of high-tech, advanced, nice planet, you know. You've yeah. got the sort of run-down, war-torn planet, kind of dystopian planet. And then you've got the sort of lush, palatial, you know, um, sort of quasi-medieval planet, even though they're not literally medieval because they actually had you know, they, they don't ride horses. Well, let's talk about that plot line then for a little bit. Cause yeah, I, I really enjoy this, this McCoy centric story on Ozalore. And, uh, you know, anytime there's a focus on McCoy, I get really intrigued because I, he's really as, as an adult, as I grow older, he's become my favorite character in the original series. And I think he has a really interesting storyline here where he's kind of smuggled off of Bracco to Ozalor by members of the Imperial Court to treat Avamora, who is known as the Yeyova. Uh, she's the heir to the throne of o- Ozalor uh, because she's been suffering some, from some sort of mysterious illness. So this whole story, where did this idea come from and, and, uh, and how did that story come about? Um, well, part of it, like, I know what you mean. The older I get, the more I identify with McCoy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In cranky old... Get grumpier for some reason. Yeah, and, yeah. grumpy old like, man, that's I, what we are. But, okay, I, I, again, I don't think I'm giving away too much if you read that book. That's kind of a riff on Anastasia Rasputin, the last days of the Romanovs. You know, um, that whole situation where you have... I, I kind of combined Anastasia and you know, the crown prince Alexei into one character. But yeah, you've got you've got the heir to the throne who has a mysterious element. Uh, local medicine can't do anything about it. They don't want people to fight. So they bring in McCoy to try to, you know, quietly treat her for, for reasons Oslor does not have diplomatic relationships with the Federation, so they can't just say, please send us one of your doctors. And the whole fact that the crown princess is basically seriously ill is a deep, dark secret. They don't want the rest of the, you know, galaxy or sector to find out. One of the things I liked about this story is very quickly McCoy ends up in a, you know, sort of dilemma. Or on one hand, of course, he's being held captive. He's being forced to treat the princess against his will. And he, he is duty bound as a Starfleet officer to, you know, try to escape and get back to the Enterprise and join Kirk and Spock and the others. But of course... Hippocratic Oath kicks in, you know, damn Hippocratic Oath. You know, he's got a patient here and she needs his treatment. And he, you know, inevitably bonds with the patient and wants to treat her and figure out what's wrong with her. And to the point where he's like, do I get, a, do I escape? Do I, you know, you know, he, he really has no choice but to cooperate because, well, A, he's a prisoner, but also, you know, he's a doctor and, you know, damn it, you know, she's sick and he's, what, what's he supposed to do, you know? Yeah, that's the conflict because he is a prisoner. You would think, hey, I, I shouldn't be here. I want to get out, but. To your point, he's a doctor. Somebody's ill. He's 
he's got to take care of her. He's got, he feels he needs to do that. It's not her fault. She's sick or that the powers that be have kidnapped him, you know, and she's actually nice. Oh yeah. No, like I said, yeah, yeah, like I said, you know, that makes it all the more sort of morally uncomplicated. Again, you got these dilemmas that, you know, Kirk is trying to be very neutral in this election, even though he has definite favorites among the candidates here, you know, McCoy wants, resents being kidnapped against his will, being held prisoner. No one knows where he is. He wants to escape. On the one hand, it's, yeah, but, um, or, uh, you know, he wants to treat the crown princess and find a cure, and he's not comfortable, like, running out and leaving. And you even get, without giving away too much, this ambiguity that there's people who actually want to help Kirk McCoy escape because they don't want the princess to get better. And he's, oh, these are the people who are actually on my side and want to help me to escape, but they're actually not the good people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're the people who want me to escape, so I won't cure the princess, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of some of these bad actors that are working behind the scenes on Ozalore, uh, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about uh, Vumri or Vumri. I'm not sure. Oh, exactly. Right. Good question. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the way you wrote her, now she's got a very distinctive look to her, which I thought was really interesting. And also, you know, her machinations behind the scenes and, and what we ultimately learn she's actually doing, thanks to, you know, another character coming and joining us. But we'll we'll join his storyline momentarily. But what can you tell us about Vumri and, and how this character came about? Well, okay, she's Rasputin. Okay, <laughs> you know, but, yeah. <laughs> she, she's a, but I, 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 but she actually has psychic powers, and she's a weird alien version, kind of Rasputin type figure. And I'll be honest, one of the inspirations for this plotline is a true incident. Years ago, when I was sort of researching stuff, um, I discovered that back when Rasputin, yeah, I guess you know, had a sway over the royal family because he was the only person who could treat the crown prince, um, various high-ranking nobles who were worried about, you know, in this case, Vumri's influence, actually approached Harry Houdini, and they wanted Harry Houdini to come to Moscow and debunk Rasputin and his powers. Houdini declined for reasons, but I thought it was a funny little tidbit. I thought, well, okay, that's, I'll be honest, that was the kernel of real history. Well, okay, what if somebody, okay, they, you've got this faith healer, mystic, psychic, telepath, who is the only person who can help the crown princess, her political opponents are going to look for an alternative. And instead of getting Houdini, they get Dr. McCoy and they enlist him over to come here. And we need you to find to find a way to treat the princess that doesn't require the woo-woo-woo, you know, spooky telepath lady. Okay, you know. The stuff sometimes lives, like I said, at the back of your head for years and you finally get a chance to use it, you know, and like, oh, it starts out with, I want to do something about McCoy. Well, it has to be something medical. Why would someone need Dr. McCoy? Well, what if they kidnapped him to treat somebody? Oh, wait, what about that whole story about Houdini and Rasputin? I'll bet I could put that in Star Trek drag, you know? <laughs> See, I like that. It's like you have a filing cabinet in your head that you're like, oh, I'll take that story and this story and combine them all into one. Yeah. Yeah. So and it, just, it starts with you want a McCoy story that involves, it's going to involve medicine. It's going to involve healing, healing healers, <gasps> faith healers. Okay. Bango. Yeah. Okay. So, right. You know, and it just sort of gives you this starting point, you know, there. Well, the third world uh, that we need to talk about in the third storyline uh, has to do with the planet Bracco, which is the planet McCoy was kidnapped from. So 
un, unbeknownst to the Enterprise crew that he's been taken to Ozalore, uh, Spock takes a shuttle and a team to Bracco to investigate this kidnapping. And uh, yeah, the, the way you describe this planet is really interesting. Like you said, kind of drab and dreary and, and war-torn and that sort of thing. It, it was interesting to picture, you know, Spock trying to navigate this world as he's continually kind of sidelined by this government and stuff. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit about kind of the genesis of this idea of, of this disputed territory, this provisional government and their kind of resistance to Spock's investigation, trying to figure out what happened here. Different kinds of stories in a way. It's like there's the political story on one planet. There's the sort of palace intrigue medievalism on the other planet. This is more sort of like, intrigue, Casablanca, the third man, noir. I was kind of going for a sort of a international intrigue noir feel. It's one of these sort of disputed areas where you got lots of shadowy factions and you don't know who to, early on, you know, Spock is told, you know, don't trust anybody. You have nobody, you know, nobody, everybody has their own agenda. So yeah, this was supposed to be the sort of dark political sort of noirish spy espionage, Ian Fleming, John Le Carey planet, you know, if you know what I mean. So and it was sort of fun for me, jumping from the three different kind of, almost three different genres in a way, the sort of, you know, uh, spy intrigue espionage stuff on on Braco, the lush medieval and palace intrigue courtroom royalty stuff in, and then the sort of modern political debates, polling statistics, you know, and, you know, counting the vote stuff on one planet. So, yeah. But yeah, I was sort of going for more sort of a moody. So, you know, it's always rainy and foggy on that planet, <laughs> you know. Well, and I even love you bring in like the muckraker journalist and and that whole aspect. I, he was a wonderful character. I really enjoyed him. Yeah. So, to a certain degree, I, I have these, like I said, ideas. One thing that's been back in my head for years was you don't see a lot of reporters in Star Trek. And in the back of my head, I wanted to get a muckraking reporter because aside from maybe Jake Sisko during the Dominion War, you almost never hear about journalism in the Federation or in Star Trek. You don't see reporters. There's there's not a reporter embedded aboard the you know, Enterprise or anything, you know. So, yeah, it's a sort of case of, oh, I, I've been meaning, sorry, I have kind of this little mental to-do list in my head. You know, do a McCoy book. Do the election plot. I, I've been wanting to sort of, you know, well, why aren't, why aren't we ever seeing reporters covering these stories when they're on so yeah, I wanted to get sort of this cynical, muckraking uh, reporter persona you, you don't often see in Star Trek. You know, it's sort of a staple of old Warner Brothers movies. But you know, uh, yeah, that's what he's going to say. Thing. Yeah, it reminds me of that. Yeah, like some you know gumshoe thing, and the reporter, hey, give, you know, this is my beat. Give me a. Yeah, he's, he's, I'm going to get my scoop. You know, yeah. and he's kind of he he's got his shady contacts you know there, there's a little bit of carl kolchak in a character not you know it's not mm -hmm. dead on but you know but just as the archetype of the sort of the front page and he's a sort of you know again muckraking reporter well on this planet bracco as well we have uh the ubf which is kind of the the terrorist organization the boogeyman that the provisional government government of the planet has pinned the mccoy kidnapping on which of course we know is not the case but Spock has to still kind of navigate this. We do meet the leader of the UBF. And this was a character who, I don't know, by the end of the novel, I've really come to respect her at various points. You know, she kind of surprises me with some of her choices and, and the way she actually turns out. 
Hinvista is how I'm going to go with the pronunciation here. Was there any sort of particular inspiration for this character? Because I, I don't know, I found her really intriguing and kind of wanted to learn more about where her fight goes from here and, and how that all plays out. She was actually a character who I was kind of vague when I started out writing the book. And, you know, um, she was a character I kind of discovered as I was writing the book. Some people, you kind of know what you're going to go with. You know, like I said, Vumri on their planet was always going to be this sort of spooky, creepy, spooky, evil telepath. You know, kind of this, I knew that the situation, I knew that the UBF was going to be a red herring. I knew the local authorities were going to try to blame McCoy's kidnapping on her. I know that they were going to, and that was sort of tricky because in the book, you kind of know that this is to some degree kind of a detour, you know, um, and that they're barking up the wrong tree here. I knew she wasn't going to be an outright bad guy because the situation on the planet is just way too shadowy, shades of gray, you know, on that planet. So, but she was a character, yeah, I was sort of inventing as I wrote her, you know, and well, how, and she's, you know, has no particular reason to be friendly or helpful to McCoy, sorry, to Spock or Nurse Chapel. We should mention Nurse Chapel is a big part of this storyline as well. Indeed, she's kind of the opinion that if she's going to get blamed for, you know, kidnapping McCoy. What the hell? She might as well, you know, run with it and try to, you know, uh, you know, milk that for all it's worth, you know. I also appreciate the kind of advice that Spock gives to her, you know, the the maybe try to open up the lines of communication and dialogue. And I, I feel like that's a direction we kind of see her going towards the end of this. Yeah. Well, it gave, gave me way too much. I, I didn't do a situation. The situation in Breco is not 100% resolved by the end of the book. I, it didn't make sense that somehow Spock and Chapel, while looking for McCoy, were somehow going to resolve the long... I, I like to think they they like to think they've left things a little better than they found them, but you know, there's you know she's, they've opened up lines of communication, you know, and they mm. put some ideas, kind of like in a way mirror mirror. The original episode ends with you know Kirk kind of putting some ideas in the heads of bearded Spock, but I, I had the same thought. We don't yeah. necessarily. Kirk doesn't overturn the mirror universe, and we don't really know what's you know. They 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 have their adventure on Breco, and they find out the situation is more complicated than they first seemed. And again, there's lots of shades of gray on the planet. Literally, in the planet is kind of bleak and foggy and raining all the time. But also, just like I said, it, you know, it's it, it's it's a tricky planet. Okay. You know- it sounds like Ferenginar in a way because of all the rain. <laughs> it's just a rainy planet and stuff. But I do love it when they're captured, they're prisoners, and one of the officers says that he could use a shave. And Chapel mentions that uh, <laughs> to, to Spock, you might look in a beer. And he said, I experimented with it once in my youth. And it was not universally well received. And I was like, sweet. I love that. <laughs> I, I was like, hoping by, I, hope, I hope that's not a little too cute. I was hoping that you know, nobody at CBS would cut that out because I was a little too cutesy. Because, yes, he, I experimented with a beard in my youth. It was not universally well received. <laughs> the lines there in the book, you know, I was being a little cute there. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. My, that's little, excellent. my little tip of the hat to Discovery, you know. Uh, and, and Ethan and Ethan Peck, you know. Absolutely. I, th- that's one thing I do like to kind of 
see if I can pick out are the, you know, references to whatever Trek is kind of going on at the time. And I, I remember I found three distinct references to Discovery in this. And the Spock's beard was one. And I remember Kirk talking about an augmented crew member having to download their memories into the computer and sort them out. And I was thinking, oh, that's Arium. We've, or not, not that that's Arium, but, but similar that's, situation. Now that we know that Arium. kind of technology exists in Kirk ta- Kirk's time, we can now reference this being a thing in Kirk's time. Yeah. Right. And there was a third one and it's fled my mind. And I'm wondering, Bruce, if you remember what the oh, third gosh. one was. I mentioned it on a chat to you at one point and, it, and it's completely Dead. out of my mind. Oh, oh I remember. I, I, I referenced the aliens from Kelpia. Yes. Oh, right. Yes. I, there I, was a Baul. Yeah. Baul. yeah I, I, I had actually sort of a list on my head, a list, on my, a list of all the aliens we knew of in Kirk's time. And I was adding discovery aliens to the list because discovery takes place 10 years before. So presumably any aliens mentioned of discovery Kirk would know of so I could reference them. So I have a sort of list of, there are some aliens they don't know about until, you know, next gen. But yeah, so yeah, I just throwing in a reference to the Bayol at one point. And of course at that point, that would be part of Kirk's history. So he would know about the Kelpians and the Bayol <laughs> and all that. So, you know. Nah. Oh, that's, that's cool. Yeah. I, I like those little things. It's treats for people paying attention, right? And it also, it's like, great. You know, every time, every new episode of Discovery gives us more, more toys to play with in the TOS era, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just curious, did you work anything into this novel that was in one of your previous Star Trek novels that we didn't pick up on? Off the top of my head, I don't remember. And again, again, publishing lead times being what they were, I wrote this book a year ago. So <laughs> it's, even I'm like... I was a little surprised when the author copy came to my head. I sort of like, oh, God, the elections. Oh, my God, you know, vote county. <laughs> why was I writing about this a year ago? Why is, why am, I, why, why am I taking cues from CNN today? You know, it was a little weird, you know. But, yeah, I, I don't, you know, there's, this is mostly a standalone book. I don't think I, I, I don't reference Gary Seven or Khan or, you know, the Antares Maelstrom or anything like that, you know. Um, yeah. What references are there are probably going to be to the original 79 episodes or, like I said, now I can sort of bring in some stuff from, you know, Discovery. I, I didn't have Spock talking about his sister, but I did have him <laughs> mention, mention, mention that he had a beard, you know. Right. <laughs> right. Well, going back uh, to the election storyline for the moment, uh, we've got some interesting characters that are involved in this. We've got Commissioner Dare and Mr. Tanaka, and and there's a whole bunch of events that occur that are kind of stumbling blocks thrown in the way. But one of the biggest ones to me is uh, Tanaka's uh, destruction of the uh, Vok Populi satellite, which I thought that was a terrific little pun name, by the way. Um, This character of Tanaka, what was, what was the kind of thought behind his motivations and, and how close he's become to the population of Valk in particular, this, this kind of girlfriend he's got there as well. As people may or may not know, when I, you know, originally pitched these ideas, I think like a 12 page outline, but you know, there, there's loose, sometimes I'm reading these things and I find, oh, that, you know, Greg from a year ago has written a check, which modern Greg has to now cash. You know, then, you know, the, the supercomputer is mysteriously sabotaged. And I don't think Tanaka being the sabotage was in my original outline. I then had to come up for a reason why he would sabotage his own computer. 
And this was all found to me I invented as I was writing the book. And even the girlfriend was not in the original outline. I think, you know, I need, need, she needed to come up and sort of make it all plausible, you know. I, I remember the business about, I knew that near the end, the supercomputer was gonna get sabotaged. This is the supercomputer that's gonna tabulate all the votes on the planet, you know, that it's been created to be beyond human error. Never a good idea in science fiction, but you know, they're gonna trust the election to the supercomputer, but, I knew the supercomputer was going to go, something was going to happen to it near the end. I, what happened was just kind of vague. And I knew how what, ha, what they were going to do after the supercomputer was sabotaged. But the Tanaka thing was something that sort of evolved as I was writing the book. And it evolved as I was trying to figure out, okay, so how exactly does the supercomputer get sabotaged and who does it? You know, that was something that there's, there's levels in which you've got the the broad stroke of the plot worked out and you have to sort of fill in the details, you know, you know, and then Kirk figures out who this is. This is the thing. My outlines are always leaving traps for me. And then Kirk cleverly figures out who the killer is. Thanks a lot, <laughs> Greg, six months ago, you know, <laughs> you know, we know it's clever, but you, you yeah. still got to work it out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I like how Tanaka went from, you know, destroying this computer system. Yeah. And then when Kirk figures out a way to ha- use the Enterprise to tally the votes, then Tanaka's ready to step up and help. And it's almost like, like Kirk's like, why should I trust you? And he's like, well, I did what I did was to save my girlfriend, but she's saved now, so now I can do the right thing. So he always really wanted to do the right thing. He just yeah, did yeah. this because he was trying to save someone. Yeah, he's not, like I said, there's a bit of a redemption arc. And he's, yeah. he's this trustworthy figure, which is why hopefully it's, surprising when he turns out to be the traitor, but yeah. he, he has reasons, you know, and he's in a difficult place. And again, he's, he, at a crucial moment, notice he doesn't actually hurt anybody. He right. doesn't, he, he can't bring himself to, you know, shoot Captain Kirk or anything, but, and he gets a little bit of a redemption arc there at the end where he, you know, saves the day. When things I think it would have been great at the end when, if he's on the Enterprise helping out, that we could have rewound to a situation that happened about 20 years ago and have him sitting there counting hanging chads <laughs> on the ship. <laughs> well, like you say, the, uh, the, the enterprise now serves as, as the vote counter kind of uh, getting past that. And that's kind of the, the last hurdle that's uh, really faced here. And we get the results of the election and I, I, it's not his original opponent because there's a whole nother thing there where, <laughs> Uh, the, the brother of, of Seth committed a crime and Seth stepped aside and, and we have her assistant coming in, but this assistant who is now at the top of the ticket gets the most votes and we get general Gog, uh, fairly quickly, uh, giving a concession, which again, like it's just, it's all (laughs) serendipity and things are lining up because, but you know, where is, we are I mean, right now in, in mid to late November, we're kind of in this weird limbo right now. And, and I find myself wishing we could get something like General Gog in here, which is crazy. Which is weird because there actually is some suspense in the book of, okay, will General Gog accept the results? Because there were some irregularities. Irregularities being that the Enterprise ship's computer ends up tabulating the votes being the most sophisticated computer in the system. And there's a, I, I tried to get a certain amount of suspense out of, you know, will he concede? Will he challenge the election? He's got aides who are pushing him to, you know, 
don't fall for this Federation hoax fraud. We're actually getting the whole hoax fraud. It's a fake, you know. Yeah. Like I yeah. said, even I am a little taken aback. Like, oh my God, that was, you know, one of the big, whole big scenes. But like I said, uh, General Goff does, for reasons, see reason at the end. And despite his more aggressive aides pressing him to contest the election results and declare it a fraud, you know. Well, um, at because- least the votes weren't real close. You know, there was a better spread. He only got, what, maybe like a third of the vote anyway. And because also at this point, again, we're getting into heavy duty spoiler territory here. He and Kirk have forged a relationship and there is a little bit of mutual respect there that even though they're on opposite sides, he they're, they're both military men. He respects Kirk as a you know man of honor and a soldier and everything. So he, even though his aides are like, you know, no, Federation, you know, fraud, fake, fake news, whatever. Um, he's a no, no, no. So Captain Kirk on your honor as a, you know, military man, are you telling me the results are authentic and okay? You know, like I said, I sort of, in my head, I was, you know, um, General Goff is played by Christopher Lee. So imagine this sort of tall stentorian figure who has a certain gravitas and, you know, dignity to him, you know, not at all warm, kind of stern and scary, and you're not sure you want Christopher Lee, you know, <laughs> you know taking over the planet. But he's, he, he's, you know, kind of cold and austere and, you know. That's kind of funny since you bring that up, since you've mentioned that. I, I really want to go reread this book with him specifically in mind for this. I, I think one day I was just, honestly, I was starting to write the book and I was watching some movie. It was, it was probably some old Christopher Lee movie. I'm thinking, oh my God, Christopher Lee, perfect. You know, <laughs> I don't always cast every part, but I was still kind of trying to figure out, figure out the characters. And I think I was watching some old Christopher Lee movie. I can't remember which one it was. And I'm thinking, oh, Christopher Lee. Oh yeah, he's General Gop. Okay, so he's... You know, and you know, I, he's described as being kind of tall and kind of austere, and he has this deep voice. And you know, okay, he's 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 Christopher Lee. Okay. Uh. <laughs> well, we've got kind of uh, that storyline wrapped up that way, and then meanwhile, you know, Spock has gone to Ozalore and and they they go to rescue McCoy, but he ends up being instrumental. Spock does in the curing of the heir to heiress to the throne. That all gets wrapped up. And then at the very end, we get this interesting scene with Commissioner Dare back on Earth, this epilogue, uh, with Admiral Comac. And I thought this was a really interesting place to leave the novel because of the deliberate choice, obviously, to set this right at the end of the first five-year mission as, as seen in Star Trek, the original series. But was there a specific reason you wanted to set this story at this point and kind of explore this this very ending of the mission here and, and specifically what Admiral Comac is kind of alluding to here? Well, I'll be honest here. That that actually wasn't my idea. That was actually that was a cool idea. That that actually was uh, my editor Margaret Clark's idea. She kind of liked the idea of placing it very clearly at the end of the mission and adding this sort of sense of sort of finality to it. So no, that was actually when we were when I first entered the outline. We were talking back and forth. She actually came up with that idea, and I thought, "Oh, great!" And so we we ran with it. But I will be honest and say that was that was Margaret's idea. She came up with it, and you know, that was her, you know, in her capacity as editor, you know, um, improving the outline. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it, it's it's interesting you say that because the feeling I got at the end of this novel when I got there was like a launching off point for a new set of stories or something. And it almost felt like there was some kind of intention behind that. I don't know what Margaret has in mind. I, you know, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, um, there, there, there isn't a contest of champion contest of principles to immediately picking up where that left off. Um, but yeah, no, it just sort of, I think they make it part of the sort of fitted, I think the idea is more to just sort of put it more into the sort of grand saga of TOS rather than just being a random moment at TOS. We're at this sort of juncture that added a whole other sort of element to the ending and, you know, closure and everything. And, and like you said, leaving it open to the, you know, sort of the continuing adventures of the enterprise, you know. I like the idea of a new set of novels. Yeah. A new series of novels, and Margaret, if you're listening, we love the idea, and and Greg <laughs> is willing to start writing those. So let's make it happen. Well, is there anything that we've uh, kind of missed when we're talking about this novel that you'd like to uh, bring up for our listeners? I guess the only other thing I would mention is we've mentioned it in passing. Is again stuff I haven't done before. Uh, Christine Chapel is a major character in this book. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Absolutely. again, she, uh, I would be honest, she's a character I've probably underutilized. I've written my fair share of TOS novels, but usually she's been there in sick play and, you know, handing, you know, McCoy a surgical scalpel or something, you know, um, at some point. But so, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed actually doing something with Christine Chapel. She is a major, she and she kind of insists on coming along with Spock on the, you know, the search for McCoy. I, I used, I joke this book could have been titled, you know, Star Trek three, the search for bones or something, you know, <laughs> but she, she obviously is interested in coming along and being there to provide medical support if McCoy needs it. So, yeah. So this is the first time I've ever really written, you know, Christian Chapel at length. And I had a lot of fun finding things for her to do. And she's a big part of the book. And I was sort of gratified to discover when I was talking up the books, which is why I'm shamelessly hyping this now. Oh, readers seem to be responding well, even before they read the book. Oh, wait, wait, Chapel's in this book? Yeah, Ch- Chapel has a whole storyline and she's a big part of the story. Because she does get neglected sometimes and there aren't a whole lot of Chapel-centric Star Trek novels. So yeah. you know, I can say she's, she she and she, it's sort of, she and, you know, Spock do kind of a you know buddy act. They're a team for a good chunk of the book. You know, um, she 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 also is very invested in finding McCoy and rescuing him. And the two of them, you know, are there on Breco. So like I said, you know, Kirk and most of the crew are on 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 Vok, but Spock is leading a small team rescue search party to find McCoy, and Chapel is right in the middle of it. Okay. And this is the first time, and I, I went on my way to find cool medical stuff for Chapel to do and to give her interesting stuff. Well, I have to say, speaking for myself personally, I really enjoyed this book. I think, uh, you know, on top of it, of course, as as we have said, being very timely and all <laughs> that sort of stuff. It's also just, I, I think this fits in really well with the original series. I, I really was kind of flashing back to that original sixties look and feel reading this book, especially, you know, how you've written Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And uh, so, yeah, I I really have to say, I think this is, this should be highly recommended. Anyone out there, if you're still listening at this point and you haven't read this book, go pick it up, go read it. Uh, There's so much more in there that we haven't even touched on. It's a heck of a lot of fun. And 
even just the fact that the the swords and spears kind of palace intrigue stuff in the palace i see that tos palace set with the wall sconces <laughs> when i read it so like <laughs> it, it yeah, really it. it oozes tos to it me it does yeah <laughs> There, there's actually a review on Amazon that actually, you know, and this is meant as praise, says, oh, wow, this book reads like it was written 54 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, but yeah, it's meant as praise. It's 1966. It feels like someone thought it on Amazon thought that it really felt like a 1966 TOS episode. So yeah, they is, thought it was groovy. trying to do is capture the feel of the original series when you're doing an original series book. Yeah, from a TOS fan, that's a huge compliment. So that, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and, and talking about this book. Where can people follow you online to learn what you've got coming up? And is there anything coming up for you in the short term that our listeners would be interested in knowing about? Um, there's not a lot I can talk about at the moment coming up. Although I did, I'll mention that I recently, there's another book that came out around Halloween called Musings on Monsters from a small press. And it's a collection of essays on classic horror and i contributed an essay on boris karloff and Mila lugosi and that came out honestly around halloween time so that's out there too it's called musing musings on monsters and there's essays on the mummy and dark shadows and all that fun old stuff and like i said i i got recruited to do the essay on boris karloff and Mila lugosi which was fun Beyond that, I have various irons in the fire, but nothing I can talk about right there. And uh, if people want, are you on Twitter? Can people follow you there? Or? I, I, I am I, I am not good on social media. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I hang out on Facebook. I've been hanging out a lot on Consolation, which is a Facebook page. It's sort of a virtual science fiction convention for all of us who haven't been to a convention for a year now for reasons, you know. But yeah, I, I hang out on the internet. I hang out on the Trek BBS a lot. Mm, yeah, you know. Well, if you're but, steering clear of Twitter, you're probably smarter than the rest of us at this point. I, I, so. I'm just old. Just, you know, it, <laughs> you know, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, it, yeah. So I, I, I don't have as much of a social media presence as I should. Though, I, like I said, I hang out on Trek message boards and the Starlog Facebook page and the Constellation Facebook page and various Star Trek literary book group, you know. We don't want you we don't want you online that much anyway. We want you writing stories. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the dilemma sometimes. You can you know trick yourself into thinking, oh I've been working hard all day. No, you haven't. You've been talking Star Trek on, you know, online <laughs> all day. But that feels like work because it's Star Trek. Well it's yeah. work, yeah. For for someone in your position, you know, you, yeah. I think you can justify that. Research. <laughs> Audience research. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, the first thing I did this morning was wake up, fix myself some coffee, and watch the new episode of Discovery, of course. So, and Same that here. Work, you know. So, <laughs> That's what I did. I will defend that to the highest court in the land as work, you know. Uh, so. <laughs> well, Bruce, uh, how about you? I'm, I'm sure we can find you online somewhere. You can. Unfortunately, I am on Twitter at Admiral <laughs> underscore Rex. I'm also on Instagram at Admiral Rex, no underscore. And yeah, you can find me on Facebook. And I have been doing some episodes of the Star Wars Report recently. And uh, as the time, by the time you're listening to this episode, there may be a new episode of Star Wars Report with a friend of ours named Aaron Harvey on with me Ooh. if all works out and we're talking about the lego star wars holiday special <laughs> very cool 
<laughs> well, you can find the show on Twitter at Positively Trek. You can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Look for Positively Trek on Facebook. Join our discussion group. We would love to have you there. We always need new members, but, uh, you know, come join us there for all sorts of great discussions. And, uh, yeah, you can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you once again to Greg Cox for, for joining us on the show. It's been fun. Awesome. And until next time, everyone out there, stay positive. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.